After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome back to Mind Rolling with David Silver and myself, Raghu Marcus. It's a new Hello. edition, Dave. Yeah, and a really good one. We haven't done our wonderful low-hanging fruit for a while, and mm. we're back with some serious, serious. low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but before <laughs> we get into that, I want to say thank you. Last week, we, we talked about uh, support after the Indiegogo campaign and how how thankful we were for the great support that, that we got through the campaign to enable us to do these wonderful things that we're working on right now, everybody, and should be ready to release in September. Um, but uh, we did suggest, of course, that we need this continuation of support. And uh, one of the ways that people just started doing on their own was just uh, hitting the donate button and giving a small, like five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks uh, on a monthly basis, which uh, is, is easier for everybody to handle and is really great for us to be able to continue to offer what we're offering as part of the MindPod network. And uh, so I want to thank everybody for that. And that's great. If you can continue to do that, it, it'll be a real boon for us. And uh, of course, uh, we have our Amazon portal through which you can uh, go and purchase everything that uh, you you love to purchase. We we usually recommend books and uh, videos and uh, music and uh, refrigerators and uh, somebody bought a. By the way, Dave, a friend of mine, who's an artist, and friend of uh, ours, uh, Roger Loft. I'm going to call out because Roger, some months ago, went and bought some kind of major, major like. A table saw type thing for his artwork. I mean, this thing cost, I don't know what it was, just him by himself kept us afloat for a month. So thanks, Raj. So, uh, yes, really. And uh, so, everybody, uh, please do bookmark the Amazon portal. Uh, that really helps. And of course, we have those t shirts up there that people seem to love as well. Any which way you can help, uh, we appreciate it. And we're leaving it as brief and short and lovely as that because we do want to get to our. Uh, as you said, we haven't had any low-hanging fruit in a while, and we found some today. It uh, wasn't hard. And uh, he's an old brother of ours. Uh, well, he's not that old, but uh, uh, Paul Aram, George uh, Pitagorsky. And uh, welcome to the show, Paul Aram. Thank you. Nice to be here with you guys. And I'm getting older, actually. You are, eh? Not old. I hear that. It, it, it's a rumor. But yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, but when I saw you last, you looked great, and and uh, Linda looked great, and everybody looked great. So maybe we're the exception, and we get better. I think that that's the absolute truth. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're like old wine, right? Um, oh, exactly. Yeah. Um. So uh, Balaram, uh, George Pitagorsky, uh, he has been uh, uh, working most recently. Actually, he works for the government. Did you know that, David? George works for the government now. I had an intimation, but I didn't dare ever ask him because I thought maybe he's working for, you know, security. But CIA. George, yeah, but knowing George, I think that's a highly unlikely thing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the small government of New York City, Department of Education. Oh, that's a very important thing right now. My goodness. Yeah, very. Go ahead. No, tell us uh, what uh, what it is that... Uh, that you've been doing and helping them out? 
Well, what I'm doing with them is working with a division that's called the uh, Office of School Support Services, which runs the uh, food services, the uh, pupil transportation, and the public school athletic league. And my role there is to uh, help the organization uh, better use technology and uh, process improvement uh, activities to uh, get better at what they do, which is basically feeding uh, you know, a million meals a day and uh, busing uh, thousands and tens of thousands of students a day, 8,000 buses running on the streets and uh, many, many teams of uh, you know, sports uh, teams of people. So uh, my role is uh, an enabling role, and I'm uh, you know, basically running an, a part of the organization that uh, is the technology part and the project and process improvement part, and uh, I've got actually hundreds of people working for me. And that's after making a vow in the uh, mid-1970s never to manage anybody. <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> didn't work out so much. Uh, so I've been doing this for about a couple of years. Before that, uh, consulting uh, in the area of project management and uh, uh, improved uh, personal interpersonal relationships, mostly in the business realm. And then, of course, I uh, I teach uh, meditation and, uh, in particular, mindfulness meditation, and the application of it in uh, making for uh, one's life to be better. Um, I. Uh, and and what uh, Balaram does is he, uh, I don't know how often, is it a monthly newsletter, a breakthrough? Yes, monthly. Yeah, uh, that we get, and there are some really inspira- inspirational articles from him. Um, and I love this little thing where you, you say, um, uh, pop the bubble of conditional conditioned thinking and emerge into the creative realm of no absolutes. I love that little line, and um, that's something we... Uh, it's a bit about what mind-rolling is, is uh, our original concept, right? Is to uh, break through uh, set patterns and so on and, and be able to have uh, the freedom of, of creativity uh, within to transform ourselves. So uh, we're, we're right in, in alignment. And what caught my eye and David's uh, is the most recent um, breakthrough newsletter, and it's called Forgiveness is the Best Revenge. I I love the title, and I know that it came. I'm going to let you talk about how that uh, title came and um, where it came from. So why don't you explain that to us, uh, George? Yeah, it comes. It actually came from a, uh, a New York Times article. It was talking about a uh, uh, the trial of a 93-year-old uh, ex-Nazi who was a functionary at Auschwitz, who was finally convicted of complicity in like thousands and thousands of murders. So this uh, ex-inmate comes up to him at the end of the trial, hugs him, and basically says that uh, she forgives him, and She's criticized for that. And basically, uh, she says that uh, for her, forgiveness is the best revenge. And it's that they no longer have any power over me, she says. I can forgive them as individuals, as people. Don't necessarily um, uh, forget about the crimes that they committed and and don't want to let this person off without uh, his being convicted. But I don't hold any further hatred for him. Forgiveness is my best revenge. And that triggered in my mind a, uh, a poem that I came in contact with many, many years ago by a, uh, a Tomas Borges, who was a, uh, uh, a revolutionary in Central America. And he writes this poem called My Personal Revenge. Uh, will be the right of our children in the schools and in the gardens. My personal revenge will be to give you this song, which has flourished without panic. And he's, he's basically aiming this at his torturer, mm. a person who, over uh, many months, tortured him, an artist, broke, he broke his hands and so forth. Mm. And he goes on to say, my personal revenge will be to show you the kindness in the eyes of my people, who have always fought relentlessly in battle and been generous and firm in victory. And he goes on and basically saying, uh, 
when instead of jailing you, I suggest you shake away the sadness there that blinds that binds you, and when you have applied your hands in torture, are unable to look up at what surrounds you, my personal revenge will be to give you these hands that once you so mistreated, but have failed to take away their tenderness. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. Isn't you know, it? yeah, I mean, George, you often do this in your newsletters. I do read them all. What you do, and you're not preaching to the choir. For those of you who are listening, this is not a newsletter that just goes out to us or something. It goes out to many business associates and so forth. Uh, but what you've done here is turn something around that most people have great difficulty, all of us have great difficulty in actually enacting this. And when you see someone who is tortured, who's willing to turn it around and not, not hate, not retaliate, no revenge... And then someone in a concentration camp, which I think for most of us of our, of our time is the most hideous thing that, one, that has been done. Mm -hmm. And along with many others in Biafra and in various parts of the world right now in Syria. But the, the Holocaust is called the Holocaust for a good reason. George, how do you, what are the initial steps that a human being must take to make this enormous jump from anger at being uh, assaulted, violated, insulted, how, what is the first kind of gateway that you have to open in order to not seek revenge and not just do the normal, you know, reactive thing, which is to hate and to, and to hit back? What, yeah, is the yeah. first, what is the first step? Well, I think, that, I think that it requires that there be some kind of a value system that finds forgiveness as a, uh, high-valued a high uh, element of one's uh, approach to life. So it, I've, since writing this, I've come in contact with a number of people who are basically saying that uh, you know, this kind of forgiveness is that there are certain things that are unforgivable. And I'm finding more and more that the people who get this notion of being able to forgive the unforgivable have underlying a sense of uh, understanding that from a personal point of view, holding on to the need for revenge, holding on to hatred, holding on to anything that separates them from others is self-harming. So that that becomes kind of a baseline or a foundation. So if one is, you know, grown up and, you know, has eliminated all of the, uh, you know, the, the background of having some kind of religious uh, training or a spiritual life or an understanding of the need for uh, unifying with others. Uh, without that, they're most likely going to be reactive. They're going to basically say, I have this anger. I have this righteous anger. It's righteous to have this anger. I want to see this other person punished. And I'm going to you know, do everything that I can do to, you know, to, to manifest that. Uh, on the other hand, if I've got some kind of a value system that says that uh, it is better for me to forgive. And not only is it better for me, but it's better for my children because I'm giving them some kind of a, uh, um, an example that holding on to hatred is, is negative and harmful, that that provides the, uh, the foundation for uh, being able to go forward and, and forgive. Then there has to be also an acceptance of the... Uh, the fact that one is going to be angry, one is going to have a, a reaction that is, uh, that is you know, negative and afflictive emotion is going to arise. And based on that, there's the, uh, uh, the acceptance, the notion that we need to accept the fact that we're human beings and we're going to react in this way. It's hard to, you know, to, to let go of, uh, of that level of anger. So we need to be able to uh, accept the fact that we're angry. We need to be able to accept the fact that what has been done is a, uh, you know, a horrendous thing. And at the same time, work with the ability to transform that anger, that hatred into something that is going to uh, resolve the anger without burying it, without uh, suppressing it. But at the same time, see if we can transform it into loving kindness and into compassion. Yeah. It's a tall order. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it, so that's why it requires some kind of an intention based on a value system that says, I'm going to do this hard work. And I like uh, what you say, uh, George, here, uh, which is 
really condensing what you just said into uh, the motivational aspect. To me, forgiveness is a spiritual act. That alone. So it's, it's part of our work. And again, if you see that as a part of our moral and value system and see that we are about transformation and that this is part of our search for transforming ourselves, for the practice, authentic, uh, a method for transmuting fear, anger, and hatred into love. However, like any act, it is the intention behind it that is the most important. Um, authentic forgiveness frees the forgiver, whether it affects the forgiven or not. Authentic forgiveness is forgiveness that arises from the desire to express loving kindness and compassion, as you just said. It stems from the belief, belief that to hate is harmful to the hater and that revenge is self-destructive. And, and uh, I think it's a tall order. It sure is. And we, of course, need to develop this kind of um, spiritual moral system when we're very young, and uh, this goes a little, you know, obviously education. A lot, I, as as we're talking about this, I just think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama so much, yes, because he this is what he is all about. This is what he espouses on a day to day basis, and uh, the and who is better prepared to be an example of this after what happened in Tibet. And he um, can forgive the Chinese for the evisceration of his, evisceration of his culture. And, uh, and I've mentioned this on another podcast that Dave and I did, um, uh, having met a Tibetan uh, Lama, Garchen Rinpoche, who had been put in a prison for 20-odd years, uh, and uh, actually uh, use it as an opportunity to become transformed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea, it, it's, the, our cultural differences are so wild. To him, the idea of hating his oppressors was, he, he, he didn't have any, any kind of relationship to that idea because to him, that was just oppressing himself. I mean, he was really living in that place where he was knowingly harming himself by uh, by having anger and hate, and uh, and he 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 was able to to come out of it um, an incredible being. Now, obviously, this is uh, we're talking about somebody as advanced lifetimes and lifetimes of work, but still. So, but how do you how how do you see the baby steps, you know, Balaram? Well, well, I think that you know, for for one thing, you know, I I agree that the Dalai Lama and the you know and other monks are uh, you know are right there with that. But the fact that uh, you know there are stories, uh, one one story of uh, two monks who were both prisoners in the uh, uh, in the Chinese uh, uh, prison, that uh, one says to the other, "Have you forgiven them yet?" And they're both they're both. You know, well trained from early childhood in this, in you know, in the Tibetan practices of forgiveness and uh, and compassion, and the, the the monk that's asked says, "No, I can never forgive these people for what they did to me," and the first monk says to him, "Well, then they still have you as their prisoner." Right. So it's not a hundred percent coming from you know from the culture. There's a there's a need to overcome a, a very natural quality of this need for revenge and holding on to uh, to the almost a thrill of, uh, of, of this negative emotion the the righteous anger now what are the baby steps I think the baby steps whatever age one is are to start to really see what it means to oneself when one can uh, digest the anger and transform it into something now how do we do that? You know, we might do loving kindness meditation where, you know, basically we're training ourselves, retraining ourselves, so to speak, to uh, act in a way that doesn't require us to love only the people who are directly around us. So we start by faking it. You know, we uh, uh, you guys I know are familiar with uh, loving kindness meditation, but, you know, other listeners may not be. But it's a simple uh, repetition 
of a, it starts with the repetition of a set of sayings, you know, may all beings be happy, may all beings be uh, uh, healthy, and so forth. Now, that kind of uh, practice can be very false in the beginning, but one starts to cultivate a, a heartfelt uh, element to it, and we start to retrain our brains to refocus on uh, being able to be loving and kind and come in touch with a quality that it said is um, in, inbred, inborn in us, which is the fact that we're loving, loving kindness and compassion are integral parts of our being and that they've been covered over by our conditioning. And what we have to do is kind of prime the pump through practices like compassion practices and loving kindness practices and simply attempting to be nice to, you know, to people, even though they're not nice to us. Yeah. So yeah. Those are the baby steps. You know, we start to, to recognize that this is a possibility. We build on to a, uh, you know, like a basic belief that says that intrinsically loving kindness is our nature. Mm. Now, can we work from there and keep doing it in the face of our old conditioning? And in the face of a culture, and you know, I hear what you're saying, the culture doesn't lend itself to that. Yeah, it's very complicated, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, right now, for instance, I was watching, <clears throat> excuse me, CNN last night, and uh, a lot of the discussion, as we're as uh, at this time, beginning of August 2015, is about this poor lion that was that was shot by this hunter Cecil in in right. Zimbabwe. And it has, it has extracted enormous anger from millions of people. And uh, on Facebook, George, I've been noting that I've never seen anything that, that brought out such anger. I mean, really, I, I'm really tough stuff about, I hope this guy dies, I want to hunt him and shoot him, and so on. And one understands that because of people's love of animals. Uh, last night, uh, CNN had a, a guy who is the head of the hunting association. Of the United States, uh, not an NRA guy, but a hunter who mm -hmm. hunts and eats what he hunts here. And it would be unimaginable to find a person that was more um, accommodating, who had more of a smile on his face, who was simply not angry with the people who were angry. It was an interesting twist, George. You know what I mean? Like, I'm looking yeah. at this guy on TV and I, I was ready to hate him myself. It's like, oh, you're going to rationalize this now? You're going to say this is okay to kill an endangered species? Come on. But by the end of it, I was kind of impressed by this fellow because he exhibited no anger towards those that were angry, which was something you say in the article. You say, uh, 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 let me just quote you. You say, haters, even those who hate haters, view forgiveness as weakness. Yes. And that is so crucial to this. And the reason I brought up this whole lion thing was that I noted it in myself how much incredible anger I had about this, the, the initial thing. You know, the, the bow and arrow, the, mm -hmm. the, the feline, and then, and then he, he suffered for 40 hours before they finished him off. How could you not oh, be angry? Jesus Christ. Huh? I didn't even know that. Now you're yeah. saying that. It's like, I, yeah. I want to kill the guy now myself. <laughs> that was my initial response. And then, of course, you've got people on, on the oh. internet angry about being angry on the level of, are you not angry about the children of Syria in the refugee camps? Why does one lion, who was a celebrity lion, get you all angry? None of you was talking about the children. It goes on and on and on. It's just a repeating, what, what do they call it? There's some kind of physics expression for this, some sort of repeating circle. How do you talk to someone who, uh, George, you know, who is just truly angry? And how do, you, how do you get them to find that delicate balance between being angry, punitive, revengeful, hatred? Think, yeah. You've already talked about it, but I want you to talk about it more. Well, I think that, you, you know, first of all, you need to recognize that not everyone is uh, savable in this way. That there are some who are just so... Uh, conditioned that they'll never get out of that that cycle you know there are the uh, you know look at the guy that shot um, you know those people in Charleston he's he doesn't care if he's forgiven or not forgiven he's got a cause you know the the uh, the ISIS people they have a cause so 
trying to get them out of their hatred of the other and therefore you know stopping them from killing and, and loving kindness is um, like throwing pearls after swine or you know dropping seeds you know against stone there's not going to be any growth there so what we I think first have to accept the fact that uh, we're not going to change everybody but the more we can be exam- examples of this and the more we can put out like the, a guy like the, uh, you know, the one that you're talking about, who's the head of, uh, you know, the, the Hunters Association or whatever. He uh, he's creating an, exa- an example the the uh, the families of the uh, the um, victims in Charleston are uh, kind of interesting because they came out and they forgave the uh, the killer. Yeah. And in the past, there have been other instances where people have come out and forgiven the killer, and they act as examples of what can be done. So I think the more we personally take on the, uh, you know, the, the hard work of being forgiving, the hard work of you know, being examples of this, the more likely it is that we can start to, uh, you know, to create a ripple effect. Uh, to go out and try to proselytize to a, a hater, very difficult. I, in, it's interesting. I got a couple of. Uh, I usually get uh, very few, uh, you know, like blog type responses to to my articles. This one, I got a uh, a few that were basically saying that uh, they thought that it was completely off base because I'm condoning the, uh, you know, I'm saying that the forgiveness is condoning the crime, which of course I'm, I'm not saying at all. I'm saying that uh, uh, quite the opposite, that it doesn't at all condone the uh, the crime. But people are so caught up in that conditioning that they're never going to be changed. Or if they are changed, it's going to take some kind of a, uh, an epiphany for them. So starting with that notion, let's teach our children to be forgiving by forgiving them for their you know, crazy stuff that they do. Let's you know, see if we can cultivate some kind of an educational process where the schools start to teach this, uh, this type of, uh, of value, of forgiveness. Uh, see if we can create a, uh, you know, a, a change in the culture. I read someplace, I haven't had a chance to really uh, look further into it, but I'm, I was told that there are some African tribes that have forgiveness of crimes as being one of the core elements of their culture. And you can start to, you know, have, having heard that, I started to be able to understand how the, uh, the South African uh, blacks could actually go through the process that they've gone through in a way that was uh, uh, culturally acceptable because they have a, a seed of that. I think we have a seed of that in, uh, you know, in the Judeo-Christian culture, you know, where, you know, Christ is, you know, is probably the epitome of the forgiver. You know, he forgave the people that put him on the cross. Uh, in the Jewish uh, tradition, uh, there's a, you know there's a sense of atonement and uh, forgiveness, where we're asking forgiveness for our own uh, crimes and and uh, shortcomings, and also giving it to others. So it's that quality of uh, changing ourselves, changing the culture to the degree that we can, and just keep working without uh, having to have the entire world, you know, think in a new way. You know, it always shocks me. It's a great answer, George, I might say, but uh, it shocks me how these uh, responses curl up within you so quickly. And the most trivial way, a couple of days ago, my soulmate and partner in life lost the top of a flask that I cherish. This is how trivial this is. She somehow, she denies this, by the way, so if you're listening, I'm sorry, Sandra, but I think you did lose it. Anyway, she lost it, and I was on my way out uh, to do something, and it was 100 degrees in in, in where we we live, George, and I needed that flask, and it had no top, and I couldn't take it. And it was amazing how quickly my anger Mm -hmm. got up. It was like, where did you learn that? Why? why, I need that. That's the one thing you couldn't have thrown away. This was over nothing. Zero, zilch, nil, nada. And there was anger. Now, just so I don't put myself down, because lacking self-worth is not a great thing. (laughs) After a few minutes of this, I began to be embarrassed by my 
by my road rage, by my, right. you know, it was just awful. And I saw it and it wasn't that hard to, uh, to deal with. But I realized that that's been years, decades, decades of listening to great teachers. Yeah. If I didn't have that, I don't know how long that anger would have lasted. Yeah. Over a stupid, stupid thing. The thing costs $12 on Amazon, by the way. By yeah. the way, out there, Nalgene, buy Nalgene <laughs> products. <laughs> the BFA, they're great, they're wonderful. Don't lose the top to the flask. Right. But, I mean, not to be trivial, I, I think that we've, we, can't be, we can't be too complacent about this stuff. That when you see that a trivial matter, like being cut off on a highway by a mad, a mad driver turns you into an immediate demon <laughs> you know i mean this is in all yeah. of us right and and yeah, you know, so i mean uh, let me just throw something out right now uh, the newsletter breakthrough newsletter is a great thing it's not that long it's always to the point it really is an informative and healing thing how do people who you're not in touch with on your email list get to, to get to see it our listeners in other words how can, well, how can they do that george they can go to my website which is uh .com, and sign up to for the uh, newsletter there uh, i usually post the newsletter articles on uh, both linkedin and uh, facebook and wow. then once one gets the article there's a sign up uh, kind of button that one presses but the direct way is to go to the website, uh, pitagorskyconsulting.com, and, uh, you know, look for a breakthrough newsletter, and then just uh, there's a, you know, a button that you press, and it asks you for your email address and stuff like that. We'll have that all up, everybody, yeah, we'll on, up. on the uh, Mind Rolling podcast, uh, on, on, on the MindPod uh, website, uh, on the Mind Rolling page. I want to just, because uh, some people are going to, are going to poo-poo us here. We're going to mm -hmm. get poo-pooed. Because uh, when we start, the, the whole thing started out with, uh, you know, this woman who embraced the, uh, a Nazi um, perpetrator, right? right? I mean, that's how this... Yeah, yeah. And people are going to go, are you out of your, you know what, mind? <laughs> right. You're going to forgive this shithead? And you're going to forgive uh, Hitler. You're going to you're going to get into um, uh, loving kindness towards these people. Uh, as what if you were back? If you were there then, you wouldn't have raised uh, uh, your hand uh, with arms to uh, to stop these perpetrators. Well, right. We, and so, uh, and you talk about this in, in, yeah, in, the, in, the, this in the, the paradox. Of yeah, it. there's, a, there's a paradox here, which is basically that any one of us, you know, can come up with examples where there's no question in our mind that we are ready, willing and able to put our life on the line and to, you know, take arms against the, uh, you know, the, the perpetrators of crimes. So, you know, in the article I write in history, each of us can identify just wars and just acts of rebellion, which others saw as terrorists act terrorists acts it is a matter of subjective values nationalism religion economic interest ideology and then i say what would have happened if we relied on loving kindness and compassion in lieu of armed resistance and open warfare to deal with nazism right. or oppression by a colonial power or autocrat sometimes resistance whether armed or passive is absolutely necessary how do we decide whether to be dedicated to nonviolence and compassion and when to direct righteous anger into active, violent resistance? Right. How do we decide is basically uh, based on a deep inquiry into what our motivation is. What's the consequence of our actions going to be? And what is our broader context and intentions? If the action is driven by unassessed anger and blind belief, step back and see what alternatives there are. Mm. Maybe in the case of the survivors of Charleston church killings, they decided to forgive because they simply sought to emulate Christ, their paradigm of forgiveness. Mm. Hopefully they were not hiding from their feelings. Maybe they were consciously choosing to emulate rather than to be driven to the more natural response of anger and the need for revenge. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know? I th and, and, Probably our best example, or I don't know about our best, but uh, certainly the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. Exactly. And you do quote this here, Krishna counseling Arjun, 
you do need to go into battle with these foes. It is the dharmic, the righteous thing to do, and you need to do it without attachment. In other words, without hate and anger, and that is uh, the power of the Bhagavad Gita in 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 that uh, reference to, uh, and certainly to what you're talking about in here about forgiveness. So, um, I think that is is a uh, really a proper response to people going, "You're a bunch of woohoo schmegeggies here yeah. talking about that." When we have this kind of, when you read, you know, currently about what's going on with ISIS, right? Probably yeah. the most pernicious perpetrators of of horrors. Um, so uh, I love this. This is just a, a, a wonderful article. You know what, uh, Balaram? We we forgot something. We usually talk to people uh, that haven't been on the show before, and we ask them a little bit about themselves. We didn't ask mm-hmm. anything about yourself. And, like, uh, you know, we talk about what are little transformations that happened for you when um, you were younger that led you into a path uh, where you were enabled to uh, be present with uh, the kind of wisdom that you share these days just talk a little bit what what are the transfer the transformers from your formative years yeah my my formative years with respect to you know moving into a more uh, you know wisdom-based spiritual life uh really came late in my life uh, i was probably 30 when i started to uh really understand that there was an alternative way of being. And by that time, I was a you know relatively successful business person, entrepreneur, part of a, uh, a startup company in the technology business and so forth. And then I came in touch with Kundalini Yoga. And uh, that blew my mind. You know, it was like kind of natural um, psychedelics. Uh, so Kundalini Yoga led me to uh, uh, a whole range of people and and groups, which um, ultimately led me to read Be Here Now. Uh, Uh (laughs) Oh, that book. Yeah. So having been involved in the Kundalini Yoga, meeting Swami Satchitananda, a couple of other uh, gurus of the time, I now read Be Here Now. And it just put everything together. It was like, you know, this uh, uh, masterpiece of uh, how in a very succinct, catchy way to put the Dharma out there. So that led me further into um, wanting to, you know, just immerse myself into that realm. Uh, So I um, left my business, took my kids and my wife out on the road, Went to Naropa Institute for uh, uh, a summer program there, which was at the pretty much close to the start of that. You mean and that when Ramdas was there in that it was year, seventy four five seventy four. I was there that year, traveling around and uh, not really partaking of the teachings, but you know, being uh, with friends and uh, you know, uh, doing what one did in those days. Then yes, we know what one did. <laughs> And coming, uh, being there the next summer, which was, I think, 76, 75, 76, uh, I decided to just go back and, you know, take the teachings there. So I took, uh, you know, the courses and then teachings with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche mm. and uh, met uh, a number of, uh, you know, other lamas and uh, people who were involved in the uh, in the Buddha Dharma. And... Uh, really at that time came in touch with the non-dual teachings associated with uh, um, Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, that was yet another changing of the, uh, like of the mindset. And uh, that's been the, uh, uh, a tradition that I've stayed with, the Dzogchen tradition, you know, taking teachings and uh, also taking teachings with uh, um, Jean Klein, who was a, uh, an Advaita teacher and, mm. And that, uh, and also at Naropa, I came in touch with um, mindfulness meditation, which became my uh, like basic foundation uh, meditation practice. I had the good fortune of uh, taking a, uh, a program with Joseph Goldstein at the time, who had just come back from 
the, the Far East and uh, was uh, starting up Insight Meditation Society. So I became uh, a practitioner of mindfulness meditation, but at the same time a, uh, a student in Dzogchen and in uh, non-dual uh, practices. And that's, you know, kind of been the, uh, the, the path that, uh, that I've been on. So it was kind of a, an interesting, um, for me anyway, an interesting way to get into all of this uh, at a very, very powerful time. And uh, then having gone through an, you know, a, uh, a process of seeing what it was like to be living on the road in a van and you know, with a pop top and out in the desert and all of that, coming back and saying, you know, poverty is not my uh, cup <laughs> of <laughs> So let me get back into the business world, mm. but do it in a way that is uh, conscious and mindful mm. and perhaps helping other people to pick up what I've learned, but in a way that doesn't require them to go to the mountaintop or to the monastery. Mm. And that's been really my work is to, you know, how do we integrate the, uh, these teachings into the uh, concrete, practical world of everyday life? Mm. And particularly for people who are... Uh, embedded in uh, the day-to-day -day business of going to work nine to five and having very little time to do anything but go to work, come home, watch a little television, have dinner and go to sleep. You know, how do we give them and us a, a possibility of really coming to grips with how they can become increasingly mindful, increasingly compassionate and kind and that takes us back to the beginning, which is basically how do we get to be forgiving? Well, we got to go through a process of learning. Now, I have to just uh, interrupt <laughs> this because I have to ask you, uh, how do you um, mix in your non-dual uh, affinity, the Dzogchen practices, uh, uh, the whole Buddhist idea ideals, with the fact that I met you at a monkey temple in Taos, <laughs> New Mexico, and you were worshiping a monkey called Hanuman. How do you uh, how do you reconcile those things there? I actually have given up attempting to reconcile those things. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the monkey is just a. Uh, a wonderful manifestation. I, I have a picture of him that I'm looking at right this very moment, and uh, it is alongside of a uh, a picture of uh, Saraswati and another of uh, uh, a Garuda. So uh, these, to me, are manifestations on the uh, um, what might be called the in the Rupakaya, in the in the place of things, in the realm of things. So we've got a realm of things. We've got a realm of uh, non-dual reality, and the two things are not at all at odds with one another. They intermix. They're there at the same time. And uh, we honor the energy that is arising in the part of the realm of things that uh, is a little bit strange and weird and mystical. And in that realm, there's Hanuman. And in Hanuman, there's the representation of total compassion and service. So, you know, there's something in my heart that resonates with that, uh, you know, with that entity. And um, some years ago, I tried to reconcile, you know, Hanuman. I mean, like, this is a monkey god, you know. Like, <laughs> and then I said, why would I want to even try to reconcile that intellectually? When yeah. I know that deep in my heart, there's no need for reconciliation because it's already reconciled. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So I want to bring up a uh, another of uh, another article from uh, from George. I call him Balaram because I don't know. I've always known him as Balaram and never really used your your English name. Right. Uh, and uh, and I'm talking. I was talking about how uh, this sure-footed equanimity that has always been present with my my friend here, and uh, 
and uh, in relation to my own, uh, at times, volatility, shall we say, and I'm going to, you know, step on myself a little bit, uh, like, uh, and admit, uh, David did a, a wonderful little job before about that little incident with losing his cap of his water bottle, <laughs> which right. was really beyond anything. Um, but uh, it, this there, one... There are some, you know... <laughs> Just to, you know, to basically own up to the fact that uh, sure-footed equanimity is uh, not the full picture. It's not, you know, huh? <laughs> not the full picture. And there are uh, instances very similar in, in kind to uh, the ones David. that they uh, expressed. Right. Not so much about the tops of water bottles, but, uh, <laughs> you know, other things. <laughs> uh, that's great. That uh, <laughs> cause, uh, you know, similar kinds of eruptions. Yeah. But over time moving from uh, punching holes in doors <laughs> being uh, much shorter in the eruption and uh, uh, right. less reactive right. in the behavior. Right. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I want to bring up this article and that we, uh, we're, we're getting close to uh, our time here, but we have mm -hmm. time for this because this is beautiful. And this article is called Happily Waiting, What to Do with Your Impatience. Mm -hmm. If I have two things that are fucked up going on, one is uh, dealing with anger, and uh, the other is impatience, okay? Mm -hmm. And how often are you frustrated, anxious, and impatient while waiting for the bus or stuck in traffic or waiting for the doctor who is already a half hour late? How often? Every time <laughs> I go out of my mind. And so here, uh, Balaram, uh, here's the mantra. It's called... Happily waiting is, is the mantra that you suggest here, and you tell what mantras are. Uh, and you, you can choose to, to change your normal reactions, and you can choose to accept what is happening and wait happily. I'm going to work on this, Balaram, because uh, this is just so absolutely uh, off the wall for me after decades and decades and decades of doing the practice. Uh, you know, I'm still... Uh, I'm a knee-jerk react uh, to anything, like uh, absolutely anything in terms of uh, waiting for my wife to go to dinner. You know, we can get down. It's 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 about the size of David's uh, water cap is kind of where I'm at with this stuff. But um, go, go ahead and just give us a little bit of, uh, of sure-footed equanimity around this subject, would yeah. you? Well, keep, it, keep in mind that my expertise in this area... <laughs> is based on personal experience right. very similar to yours. So, <laughs> so happily waiting, interestingly, came out of a, uh, uh, you know, of both personal experience and working with a group of uh, elderly people, elderly, some of them are not so much elderly than, my, than I am, but, uh, you know, a group uh, that was complaining about waiting for the bus. So I gave them this mantra to do. What the mantra is all about is basically being able to recognize when the impatience comes up, when there's this, you know, this movement towards the eruption of anger. If we've got some degree of mindfulness, we can catch the, uh, you know, the arising of this. Sometimes after it's come, you know, into some strength, you know, as David was saying, you know, he, he erupted, but relatively quickly saw the uh, uh, relative insanity of the uh, of his actions and was able to stop it, forgive himself for that, and then come back to calming himself down and, and realizing what it was all about. So the mantra, is, or any mantra, is basically a way of uh, bringing oneself to the present and then cultivating an, a mindset. So happily waiting. Instead of unhappily waiting, which is the mind is the mindset that comes when impatience is there. I feel the impatience coming up. I remind myself, hey, you know, I've got this mantra, and I start repeating to myself, happily waiting, happily waiting, happily waiting for the bus, happily waiting for Saraswati, happily waiting for whatever, uh, but just happily waiting, happily waiting. And as I'm doing that, I cultivate a small smile, an internal smile, Man. That is now not only saying happily waiting, but feeling happily waiting. Uh. And then we allow that smile to be digested into the body as a whole and into the mind. And all of a sudden, 
there we are, actually happily waiting. Right. I'm going to try this, Balaram. Yeah, yeah. And I will report to you at the end of the month uh, my <laughs> success rate. Uh, but but not uh, joking aside, the truth is, everybody, for every one of us, practice makes perfect in all of these things, in in developing and cultivating forgiveness, real cultivating the fact that anger and hate that uh, is uh, projected really um, is a boomerang, and it hurts all of us. It hurts ourselves, and it takes that kind of consciousness to want to change. Um, uh, I just did a, uh, we've been working, I don't know if you know this, uh, Balaram, we just uh, finished a four-week course, uh, mindfulness and meditation course with Ramdas mm-hmm. on org. And one of the things, we, I did a webcast the other night with Ramdas, and I had picked this, because many people have trouble with the consistency of meditation, mm-hmm. with the... Uh, with the with fear, you actually sit down and there's a fear. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a fear of all of these thoughts and, and you're out of control. There's a fear that nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Joseph Goldstein, who you mentioned before, is a, a teacher you had and, and is on our MindPod network, uh, one of our uh, teaching podcasters. In his book, Mindfulness, talks about ardency, to be mm-hmm. ardent, the passion uh, to... Uh, to persevere with our practice because we understand the importance of it and how we can transform suffering. And so that, that's a, a, a very important thing for, for all of us on a day-to-day basis and certainly uh, practicing uh, w- w- patience, uh, which is, again, something that is really important to me and and something I do try and do, and I have failed a lot at it. And um, and it goes into the workplace. I'm sure you've talked to people in the workplace. I mean, the <laughs> worst thing for any kind of manager uh, who uh, dealing with uh, employees or, or, or co-workers is impatience. I mean, it absolutely. is absolutely devastating, and I'm sure you've consulted uh, many times with people. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I Listen, we're... we're we're close to uh, the end of the, the show, but uh, we would be remiss without, as you have been uh, teaching meditation, um, I, I think that we have many, many, many people who uh, are loyal uh, listeners to Mind Rolling, and we call them our Mind Rolling Mind Rollers, <laughs> uh, who uh, really ask us uh, on a consistent basis to be given whatever tools that we have to just just the most basic how to balance ourselves on a day-to-day basis and if if you could uh, just lead us in a in a meditation uh balaram uh, a simple mindfulness meditation and a way for people to just start out their day uh, that would inform the rest of their day in terms of uh what i call uh uh, mimicking, at the very least, your sure-footed equanimity. <laughs> so, can we have a, a, a short uh, sure. meditation yeah. from you? Yeah, would be great. Let's find a uh, comfortable posture, erect, but at the same time relaxed, where relaxed is more important than erect. Gently close the eyes. And if that's uncomfortable, if their eyes are open, make the gaze general. And come in touch with the sensations of your body. Just feel your body. Feel the weight of your body against the chair, the air against your skin. Just feeling. Take note of the sensations of your breath, the inhalation, the exhalation. Wherever it's most prevalent for you, the rising and falling of your chest and abdomen, the air moving across your upper lip, in and out of your nostrils. Just take note of the sensations of your breath. Note any thoughts that might arise. 
any feelings, physical sensations, sounds, visual images, smells, anything that might arise in or around you. Just take note of it. And if you find yourself distracted, caught up in thoughts, as soon as you realize it, bring your attention back to the body and to the sensations of your breath. And begin again, just noticing. Just noticing. Letting things be as they are. And as you do this in the morning, in the evening, even taking five minutes out during the middle of the day, busy doing whatever you're doing, come back to the body, come back to the breath, come back to just noticing, cultivating this quality of objective mindfulness, Begin to use everything that's occurring in or around you as an opportunity for cultivating a greater degree of mindfulness. Let the meditation invade your life. Let the formal practice be a practice for moment-to-moment meditation. present, aware, simply mindful of whatever is occurring. So, dead air. <laughs> I think very alive air. Alive air, yeah. Alive air. Yeah. Oh, that's great. We really yes. appreciate that, Balaram. Thank you. So, Balaram George Pitagorsky, and uh, you will find out how to be hooked up with uh, georgepitagorskyconsulting.com. It'll be up on our site, so you can tune into his newsletters and uh, whatever other offerings he has, because he, uh, if you're in the New York area, I think you do live meditation teaching, I no? do, um, mostly through uh, New York Insight Meditation uh, Center, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be doing courses there uh, uh, starting in January, a five-month course in, uh, called Conscious Living, Conscious Working, and uh, short before that, a course on wisdom, but... Uh, yeah, and, and generally once a month offering a uh, uh, a meditation at New York Insight. And then you'll see all of that on George's uh, Balaram's website. And again, if you're in the area, you certainly can take advantage of it. And uh, you know what? I'm thinking, Balaram, we should, uh, we're going to be offering uh, some courses through our new MindPod app that mm-hmm. we're developing, which is why we did this crowdfunding one of the reasons, uh, recently, and uh, we should get together with you and combine forces and uh, and perhaps offer something out to everybody because I think it's really uh, important for people to have some of these tools to cultivate what we're talking about today. So uh, thank you so much. And, yeah, uh, you know, we're, we, will, we shall do this again. This will, be, this will be so valuable for so many people who listen to this thing because it's it's not coming... You know, from a, I know how esoterically deep you are, George, but the, the way you did that meditation, the way you've spoken for the last hour is so accessible and so incredibly useful in this time. Give our love to your lovely wife, Linda, please. Will do. Everybody go to mindpodnetwork.com and we have that incredible array of teachers from Jack Cornfield to Ram Das, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Lama Surya Das. Uh, we we got it all going, and uh, and here we are at mind rolling, and we'll see you next week.
Yes.